0: Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern.
1: I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests will discuss relevant health related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Now, Dr. Doctor is brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of our friends at CMF Curo. You can learn a lot more at mycatholichealthcare.org, and you can live your Catholic faith in your healthcare at CMF Curo.
0: Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, and we have an emphasis on global today with Dr. Dermot Kearney. He's an Irish-born physician practicing in in England, Northeast England, who has saved babies' lives by interrupting the abortion-by-male two-pill process for dozens of women and he suffered for his good work. I met Dermot at two different meetings in September, the annual Catholic Medical Association Conference in Denver, and the following week in Rome at the quadrennial or triennial International Congress of Catholic Medical Associations. He is a wise, kind, and gentle man who demonstrates that bad humor does not exist only on this side of the Atlantic. I hope you enjoy uh, getting to know him as much as as I have, and I think uh, if you're a guy listening, your wives will probably just be enamored by his Irish lilt. So, Chris, maybe we could start with a story that illustrates why Dermot's story is so important.
1: Yeah, sure. Let's start with this. Tom, you said dad humor, not bad humor, in case the listeners. I did. Have I did dad more, father more yes. connection. Yeah, because they're yeah. different. They're completely there different. Is? There is. <laughs> yeah, you know, in this this scenario, it's almost impossible to pick a story because they are just too many. Uh, it's story after story after story, and. And they're all pretty strikingly similar with with slight variations, but they all go something you know along these lines. A young woman finds herself most typically, I would say, alone, uh, very frightened and feeling pretty isolated, and she's told by someone that the answer to all of her problems is an abortion. Um, and then all she needs to do is take these two pills, about forty eight hours apart, and her problems go away. Well, you know, the reality is the baby goes away. Um, not her problems. But then something happens, magically almost, after she takes the first pill while waiting to take the second pill, and she changes her mind. Now, the establishment, our friends at Planned Parenthood and their international equivalents, will say, sorry, there's no going back. Um, but listeners will remember we had a, a show some time back with Dr. Delgado of the Steno Institute. He is an author of a huge study looking at this very phenomenon and he and we would argue you can go back and you can save this baby or at least some of them he published a landmark study that showed somewhere almost 70 percent of pregnancies could be saved by taking progesterone in between the first and the second dose and skipping the second dose for women who changed their mind um, this study showed that it was safe for the mother and if the pregnancy went on and it was successful that it was really safe for the baby So this idea of progesterone in pregnancy, we've been talking about for generations, and there's scientific literature going back to the 40s. That's actually older than you and I, Tom. Yes, yes, it is. (laughs) And Progesterone poses absolutely no risk to the mom or the baby. Well, this should be, you know, a no-brainer, right? Well, it's not the case. It's very controversial, as we're going to hear. But imagine a mom calling and saying that she's changed her mind, Um, and that you progesterone, you prescribe progesterone for, and an uneventful pregnancy, uh, happens as a result of that. You can imagine how good that would feel to allow that woman to successfully change her mind.
0: Why does this matter to our listeners? Why should they enjoy listening to this episode?
1: Well, you know, because there's a very good chance that you or someone you know or love is going to find themselves in a position like this. So there's a lot of reasons. I mean, you know, it's an example of the government intervening and stopping a physician from exercising what he or she thinks is best for his or her patient. You know, we take that for granted, but we shouldn't anymore. You know, it puts policy and politics above the patient-physician relationship. And that's dangerous. And it's just another example of the, go- of the government forcing a physician to do this, in this case to not do this, um, with the political sort of wave of the moment dictating the right thing to do. And it's, it's another example of a pretty sad anti-life, that is the culture of death, and how pervasive it's, been, it's become in our society. So listeners, take heed. This is an important topic, and I think you'll learn a lot from our, our guest.
0: And I think you've actually done this with women, haven't you, Chris?
1: Yeah, I've been privileged to to step into this role with uh, a national network where women will call. They'll find us on the website and we'll have the chance to prescribe the progesterone. And we've had some wins. We've had some losses, uh, but we've had some wins. And they're sweet, sweet victories when they come.
0: And, you know, we covered this on episode 204, as you said, with right. Dr. George Delgado. So if people want to listen to it... Um, But what are you hoping to learn now as we talk to Dermot about his story?
1: Yeah, you know, in my own sort of way, I want to know, what was it like to fight the government? You know, you can't beat (laughs) City Hall. Uh, Well, he did, as we're going to hear. What was that like? You know, where did he get the courage to do that? I'd like to think I had that courage, but... I don't really know. <laughs> you know, did he ever second guess his decision? And what did he learn from that fight that might help physicians across the pond, as we say, that very likely could find themselves um, in similar positions related to something we've talked a lot about, this so-called gender-affirming uh, medicine uh, or other medical campaigns. So I really think that our listeners can learn a lot for themselves. And you may just learn enough to help your physician who finds themselves in trouble, just like this physician was.
0: That's that's great. I can't wait to uh, unearth some of what's behind Dermot's story. And of course, we have our medical trivia question of the day. So I thought we would use the category of female sex hormones. And we have a expert here to correct me if I'm wrong in my question or answer. <laughs> so the question is this, which of the following hormones that are typically associated with women plays the most important role in the production of sperm in men. And you have five choices. One of them is correct. First, A. Estrogen. B. FSH or follicle stimulating hormone. C. Luteinizing hormone or LH. D. Progesterone. Or E. Prolactin. One of these plays the biggest role of the bunch in making sperm and men, but you're gonna to have to wait until the end of the show to get your answer. But we'll be back with Dr. Dermot Kearney here on Doctor, Do- Doctor After the Break. Welcome back to Doctor Doctor for our special guest interview and we're more special than usual tonight going across the Atlantic Ocean to England where we're talking with Dr. Dermot Kearney. Dermot is a cardiologist, but he also does general internal medicine call. That doesn't happen in the United States. He's the past (laughs) president of the Catholic Medical Association of the United Kingdom. And he got his medical degree from uh, University College Dublin in Dublin, Ireland in 1989. He did a general medical uh, residency and cardiology specialist training in Ireland. Then he did interventional cardiology uh, over in the Low Countries, in the Netherlands, uh, between 2001 and 2003, and since then he's been at Queen Elizabeth Hospital at Gateshead in Northeast England. Uh, and since and uh, so he's going to talk about an incredible experience he had with that entity known as the National Health Service. Dermot, welcome to Doctor Doctor.
2: Thank you, Thomas. It's a, it's lovely to be here. Pleasure.
0: So so Dermot, something happened in April of 2020, early in the pandemic that changed the availability of abortion in the UK. What happened?
2: Yeah, well, f- first of all, the um, most abortions in the United Kingdom are now carried out by pharmacological means as opposed to surgical mm. means. And that's been the case since about 2014 where it just went over the 50%. I think the, the United States is still a little bit, um, I, I think it's just recently passed the 50% mark in that regard. Mm. Uh, however, um, the abortion providers are, are not happy. They want uh, more and more abortions to be carried out. So a number of years ago, they appealed to the government to change the ruling because the Abortion Act stipulated that abortions could only be carried out in a a designated uh, place, um, such as a hospital or a clinic. Uh, And they wanted that a a mother's home, a patient's home could be considered a a designated place. So they managed a few years ago to get it that the second abortion pill, the, the misoprostol, could be... Uh, given to the mother when she attended the first clinic. So she had to attend a, f- a clinic in person uh, to get the first drug, the at uh, 200 milligrams, and she had to take it in front of the, the abortion provider. But then she would be given the second drug and instructed to take it either the following day or two days later to complete the, the abortion. And then a, a pregnancy test that she was to check uh, uh, th- about three weeks later. Our listeners. So, then, probably- there's a
0: change that happened in April I wanted yeah. to clarify here.
2: Yeah so so in April so with the, with the covid pandemic um that opened the door for the abortion providers to make it even more liberalized so they claimed that women it wouldn't be safe for them to go to to uh, clinics to pick up this this first pill to get the first pill so they they demanded and appealed that uh, the whole process could be could could be considered uh that a mother's home could be considered the, the place where all abortions could take place including the first pill so they appealed so during- for
1: I was. Excuse me for interrupting. I was just going to say maybe listeners would benefit from you giving us a sense of sort of the ad- abortion temperature. You might say we're pretty familiar with what it's like here in America, but for the average person on the street, if you just struck up a conversation uh, about abortion, wh- what's that like there?
2: It's um it's deeply ingrained. Um, abortion is considered by the vast majority of people uh, to be a woman's right, a reproductive mm-hmm. right. Uh, Having said that, the majority of people don't think about it, and it's not an issue that people in in Britain are prepared to discuss very Mm. openly. Uh, Some might have strong feelings one way or another, but it's only a very small minority on both sides of the argument. So the the, the staunchly pro-life people like myself and the staunchly pro-abortion people uh, are happy to engage in conversations (laughs) to try to get Mm. their point of view across. But I would say at least 95% of the population would prefer not to discuss that topic. Uh, having said that, if you asked most people on the street, they would say, oh, yeah, well, it's a, it's a woman's right to choose. Uh, for mm. example, I, I did a, I did a survey myself in my own hospital. I think you might find this interesting among doctors. And I think doctors are pretty representative of the, the general population. And they're not as well educated as uh, we would like to believe, I'm afraid. I asked them a simple question first. I went just from ward to ward, taking an opportunistic um, audit that I did. I asked this first question, in your opinion, should abortion be decriminalized? Now, the vast majority said, oh, but it is decriminalized. So that's, first of all, they, they showed they didn't understand the law because abortion still is a criminal offense in the United Kingdom. But it must be carried out under the terms of the, the Abortion Act or else it is a criminal offense. So that gave me the opportunity to, to discuss the legality and so on. But uh, 85% of, of the respondents said, oh, yeah, it should be decriminalized. Mm. So then I asked them, I said, okay, if I ask the question in a different way, in your opinion, should abortion be available for any reason without restriction up to birth? Uh, Would that have changed your mind? And 95%, so 85% had said, oh, yeah, it should be decriminalized, but a whopping 95% said, oh, no, 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 that can't be right. And they all had Mm -hmm. different reasons. Some, oh, no, you can't go beyond 24 weeks, or you can't go beyond the heartbeat, or you can't go beyond sentience or other sort of arbitrary time points that they'd chosen. So it's interesting that... Well, two things. For, it showed me that doctors don't understand the issue and, and the, the legality of the situation. But secondly, it showed that, by, which we all know, by asking the question in a particular way in a, in a poll, you can get whatever response that, that you want by just changing the, the question around. So, and I think that would be reflected that most people do not understand what abortion is. They would accept that it is a a, a woman's right to have an abortion if it's her, if it's her choice. Uh, but when you actually show them, for example, the videos or the pictures, that quickly changes the mind and the hearts in, in a lot of cases.
0: So, Dermot, when abortion became easier to come by, <coughs> both yeah. pills could be sent to the house of the, the mother, did the abortion rate go up? And yeah. Yeah. how did you Sorry. get involved?
2: Okay. Well, the abortion rate was going up anyway. So the, with, with, with the, with, I hesitate to call it medical abortions. I think medicine, medicine's a good thing, but drug-induced abortions, uh, with the availability mm-hmm. then, Abortion became much more widely available and, you know, highly p- pushed by, by the abortion providers. But certainly there was an increase in the numbers of of abortions being carried out once it became possible to do it without the the inconvenience of having to go to a clinic. So so that came about, uh, as you correctly said, towards the end at the end of March, start of April, uh, twenty twenty, with using the excuse as the COVID, the COVID pandemic. Uh, initially, it was meant to be just a temporary measure, but earlier this year. That has now become a permanent feature of of, of, of the law. And uh, so I became involved in the abortion reversal uh, process. We had started or we had been thinking about this long, long before COVID ever came on the scene or long before um, pills by post or telemedicine uh, became a, a prominent feature of, of abortion provision. It goes back as far as uh, 20, 2014, sorry. Um, I'm a member of the, as you said, of the Catholic Medical Association. I've been on their council since 2010. And at one of our council meetings in 2014, uh, a wonderful man called Jack Scarisbreck, who founded one of the the strong pro-life organisations in this country called LIFE, he attended our council meeting and he had heard reports coming from the United States that um, while abortion by drugs was not as commonly uh, performed in the United States, but already there were women who were receiving progesterone treatment in an attempt to save their babies after they'd taken the first mifepristone. He had heard reports of this. None of us knew anything about it because it was only established around 2012 by the the abortion pill reversal network in the US. So he asked us, could we look into this? So we decided we would. We were a little bit skeptical, all of us on the council. There was about 15 of us there. We were concerned, you know, first of all, could it it actually work? Would it be effective? Because we'd been led to believe that mifepristone was a potent drug it induces abortion almost immediately. So, you know, even if you give progesterone um, the antidote to mifepristone, it would it have any effect? We were concerned about the possibilities of uh, of, you know, if the baby did survive, uh, would there be some congenital problems, thinking of thalidomide and so on? Uh, so, we quickly um, satisfied ourselves that, that that wouldn't be the case when we looked into it in a little bit more detail. But we were determined that we would look at least. Uh, look into the, the issue. There wasn't a lot of information available. Most would come in from the United States, and just a few small case reports. But we also saw that there was opposition to the uh, to the whole concept of abortion reversal treatment from the, the, the staunch uh, pro-abortionists. Um, not a lot happened until about 20, 2018 at our um, annual conference uh, of the CMA, another wonderful pro-life advocate called Claire McCulloch of Good Counsel Network in London. She came to our conference and she appealed with us that so many women were coming to them, having changed their minds after they'd taken Mifepristone. Could we please do something about it? So having now got this second um, request, and this time more forcefully, we decided we had to really try and do something. So I went to the United States um, to meet George Delgado. I attended the Uh The, the U.S. annual um, educational conference in Dallas that year, 2018, had the pleasure oh, to yes. go, go to George's talk on abortion reversal. Met him afterwards. Had a little talk with him and a few other people who had some experience in the area. I read everything I possibly could on on mm-hmm. both sides of the argument, and I became convinced. Yes, this this is necessary, and it's uh, you know we have to do it.
1: Derman, I know I know listeners are are questioning because it's a subtlety, but really a big a big point that's worth pointing out is that. So the pro-abortion, we could understand why they would want women to take the pills. But what I think listeners would be surprised to learn is the vehement opposition to trying to help them if they change their mind, yeah. which isn't something that people I think would usually think. If, if you're decided to have knee surgery and then the day before the surgery you decided not to have the knee surgery, no one would really care. But put us in the minds of, uh, of people uh, in the UK, why are the pro-abortionists opposed to the woman changing her mind midstream, so to speak?
2: Um, it's difficult to know. And uh, that, that is one of the arguments that we try to make, that, you know, if you're really pro-choice, as they claim to be, you know, what's wrong with the What's wrong with a woman changing her mind and having a, sure, a different choice? Exactly. Yeah. However, I, I think and I'm, I'm pretty certain about this, actually, because the. The clue comes from an interview done with Daniel Grossman. He's one of your, in your country, one of the most outspoken uh, opponents of abortion reversal. And he has come over many times to the United Kingdom to speak with you know, the abortion providers in this country. And I think they take the lead from him. Um, the, he, in, in the interview, he claimed that it's not, nothing to do with the medication, it's the rhetoric. He says it's this rhetoric that, that women are changing their mind. So they, they yeah. have to try and convince us that this is not necessary. Women, if they decide they want an abortion, they're not going to change their mind. Mm. And in the United Kingdom in particular, when, when that when that issue is, is raised, uh, we have to accept that women are changing their mind. Hundreds of, them, hundreds of them are changing their mind. For example, we had help between Dr. Riley and myself, who was my colleague in providing the service. We took 150 calls before we were stopped from doing so. And after, in the nine-month period when we weren't allowed to continue the service, we were we were made aware of at least 160 calls, so there are hundreds of women uh, yeah. seeking this, and there could be more. And this is also a service that nobody knows anything about. It's not advertised, nobody promotes it. Certainly, the abortion providers don't tell women if you change your mind, you know, you can always get progesterone. <laughs> so nobody knows about it. So these women were finding it themselves by desperately going online uh, and typing in abortion reversal and getting helplines and so on. So. So we know that women are changing their mind, but then the question arises, if women are changing their mind, and if it's accepted they're changing their mind, why are they changing their mind? And we, we know the answer to that. That's very simple. And it's particularly more noticeable now with the telemedicine and the abortion pills by post, that they get no counselling. They get absolutely no counselling. They're given no alternatives. To, like nobody would ever suggest, well, have you really thought about this? Um, We we don't have a three-day waiting period like they do in some European countries. So once a a woman makes a phone call, she's basically posted out the the pill straight away. Um, So they get no counselling, they get no alternatives offered to them. They're not told anything about uh, adoption or pro-life or crisis pregnancy centres that that might be able to help them financially or emotionally or in supportive ways. So they get no counselling, they get no support, they get no alternatives offered to them, and then they get no follow-up. So they, if problems arise, they, they're they told, oh, go to your local EOR department, uh, something to do with it. So, so Dermot, were department.
0: you stopped from doing this because a lot of patients complained about what you were doing?
2: No, no no, no patients complained. Not a single mm. patient complained. And that, that's one of the strongest points in our favor that, that helped us in the end. But fact, then who I... had a
0: right to stop you? Usually it's patient complaints that stop a physician. Yeah.
2: It, it, well, it's it, the regulatory authority can stop us. So we were stopped by the general Medical Council, that's the regulatory authority, but they mm-hmm. can only do so if complaints arrive at their doorstep. So they got two, in my case, they got two specific complaints. One was from Mary Stopes International, the Medical director of Mary Stopes International, uh, who now call themselves MSI Reproductive choices because they don't like the connotation of Mary Stopes being identified as their founder because of her racist and eugenicist background. <laughs> <they, they> <laughs> like
1: Margaret Sanger.
2: The, yeah, they've changed the name to MS, MSI, so um, so we, we wouldn't identify who MS is. Uh, so the, <clears throat> the first complaint came from them, and the second complaint came from the Royal College of Obstetricians Gynecologists. Um, and between the two of them, it was obviously an orchestrated attempt because the complaints arrived more or less on the same day. Um, no, no patients complained, as I said. The there were there were ten allegations against myself. Um, I won't go through all of them, but they just to show you the the, the stupidity and the absurdity of it. The the first the, the first allegation was that I was prescribing an unlicensed um, medicine remotely. Now, first of all, progesterone is not is not unlicensed. It's licensed for use in various uh, situations. It is not licensed for abortion reversal because no drug is licensed for that. And um, so it's an off license use. So what they neglected to inform the GMC and others and the media is that misoprostol, the second drug, is also unlicensed or it's used off-licensed. <laughs> it's licensed for use in peptic ulcer management, but it's not licensed for, for abortion provision, whereas mifepristone is. So they neglected that. I also, I also pointed out in my defense that um, metotrexate, uh, quite a dangerous drug actually, is widely Adopted and promoted by the Royal College of Obstetricians for management, medical management of ectopic pregnancy, but it is not licensed for that for that indication. It's licensed for rheumatoid arthritis and chronic inflammatory disorders, but was silence Met when I made those, those points. So that's the first thing. The second <laughs> is that we were remotely prescribing, so most of our, in fact, all of our consultations were by telephone contact with with the the mothers who were seeking help, and they contacted contacted us. We didn't uh, we didn't go looking for them. Um, but again, all of the abortion pills are done by telemedicine, so that just shows the hypocrisy. And the, the silliest one of all is that in the, the number ten, the t- number ten allegation against me was that I was not following the NICE guidelines. And NICE is a very powerful body; it's the National um, National Clinical National Institute of Clinical Excellence uh, that determines, you know, what standards of care in, in medicine in, in the UK. So I wasn't following the NICE guidelines on abortion provision. I wasn't providing abortion to anyone. I was.
1: They might as well have said That's I right. wasn't following.
2: I wasn't following the nice guidelines on rheumatoid arthritis management or chronic inflammatory bowel disease. So, so Dermot,
1: I mean, I think this is an international phenomenon. But physicians, we we don't like to think that we're breaking the rules. Um, we tend to want to stay within the lines, and it, it's a great fear I think of most physicians. I'm going to be called out by my peers for doing something that isn't isn't right. Um, what was that feeling like for you when you know the entire national infrastructure comes after you like that and says what you're doing is wrong?
2: It, it was a sh- it was a shock the way it happened. However, for I, I knew that I knew that someday we were going to have to be we were going to have to explain ourselves because sure. we were we were doing something a little unorthodox um, in what we were doing. It was a service that wasn't recognized by the national health service. Uh, there was nothing wrong with it. We knew that there was no law against it. Um, <laughs> And I think it's very important uh, to to let you know, and for the listeners to know, that before we embarked on this, so in 2018, when we decided we were going to take this seriously, um, I, was, I had just been elected president of the, the CMA in the UK at that stage, and I was particularly keen to develop this service. And we decided we would go about it in the right way. We weren't just going to do it as outlaws, we were going to seek support from the the governing body so we wrote we wrote very respectful letters to the royal college of obstetricians and gynecologists to the royal college of general practitioners and to nhs england explaining to them the rationale for this wonderful treatment how it can save lives uh, the the Mm -hmm. evidence base for it the safety data with it and uh, we got and and, you know and could these organizations please support uh such a wonderful development and the responses we got back were 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 very very disappointing. They again, mm-hmm. the Royal College of Obstetricians said they do not support an, an unlicensed use of medication. That's when I reminded them that methotrexate and misoprostol and so on were not licensed for for what they were um, advocating it for. The NHS England said something interesting. They said that they weren't convinced by the evidence base and they felt that expectant management was the if a woman changes her mind because they know they can't force a woman to undergo an abortion so they have to accept that But if a woman changes her mind after she's taken the, the first drug the mifepristone that the best that they could recommend was expectant management that becomes very important when when we look we'll probably talk in a few minutes about safety and so on and when we come back to that because that's a, a statement that could come back to haunt them
1: well i'm then, sure it's no coincidence but and i'm sure you're aware the american college of OBGYN. Makes very similar statements. You know, they say it's an. They go so far as to say it's unethical, Uh, and they base that on the studies. Many of the studies quoted didn't have the appropriate IRB and ethical observations done. But to say that it's unethical, I thought was really a reach, even uh, for ACOG. Uh, But but the same argument. So this is an international plot. It's uh, it's not limited to either of our of our countries.
2: But after we wrote to those three bodies and we wrote back a second time but we got no further responses from them and we wrote a third letter saying that we were disappointed and that we were going to go ahead with the service and we presumed they would have no objection to it and that and that led on to that what we did then but in mm-hmm. the meantime we wrote to the to the general medical council asking that if a mother if a woman has taken the first abortion pill and she changed her mind and she approaches a doctor for help what is a doctor supposed to do so we mm-hmm. thought that was a very genuine good question for The regulatory body to help us with, and they gave a pretty non-committal but a reasonable answer. They said, "Well, we're not in a position to make clinical judgments because they're not a clinical organization. But they reminded us of their policies that, you know, all patients, including women in this situation, have a right to know all uh, treatment options available to them and can change their mind and withdraw consent at any time. So we took that well, okay. So they said they weren't objecting to what we were doing. So, and then we that's when we wrote the third letter to the colleges and said, you know, we're going to go ahead with this. It took a little while to get it off the ground because then there was organizational. How do we actually get the word out there that this treatment is available? And we'll and this is a work. good
0: point. We need to take a break before the second half of the interview. Come on, Dr. Doctor. We'll be back with more of Dermot Kearney in just a minute.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Doctor and our ongoing conversation across the pond, as they say. So, Dermot, help us understand, um, you know, you made it, You got this letter and they said, stop doing what you're doing. At the same time, they said women deserve informed information, which is noble. Um, but what were you stopped from doing in May of 21? and Who kind of helped you through that?
2: Yeah, we got um, myself and Dr. Riley, we got... Um an, an email from the GMC, the General Medical Council, on the, actually the 28th of April, to inform us that uh, serious complaints had been made about our practice in relation to this service we had been providing and that we were ordered to attend a tribunal, medical practitioner's tribunal service, on the 12th of May, of, of, so within two, less than two weeks in order to pre- prepare for it. And we were given details of the, the complaints and the allegations that
1: had been made against now, us. Could, could you have lost your ability to practice medicine as a result of that?
2: uh not at that stage i could have done they, they have a process where you have these sort of cases have to be referred to uh what they consider an independent um body the tribunal service which is part of the gmc and it's in its own right it's the members are trained by the gmc sure but um so they have to go to this tribunal and then the tribunal will make a decision so the tribunal could have decided no there's no case to answer here or they could have decided to suspend us completely from medicine for a period of 18 months that means we wouldn't be allowed to work anywhere in the uk as as doctors or as they did, they decided we could still work within our normal NHS jobs, for example, mm-hmm. me as a cardiologist, but they put they put what they call conditions attached to our license. So in my mm-hmm. case, the, the main condition was that I must not um, prescribe, administer or recommend progesterone for abortion reversal treatment. They also stopped me from doing any voluntary work, any private work, which I don't, I don't do anyway. Uh, Dr. Riley was a little bit different because she's an obstetrician, so she... Mm-hmm. Um, Sorry, said, <laughs> oh, <ooh. laughs> So, so they, they didn't stop her from prescribing progesterone because she needs it for other things, but they stopped her from doing any voluntary work, any uh, private work. And also their, all, all of her clinical activities had to be supervised by somebody appointed by the GMC. So, you know, basically they were just going out of their way to ensure that we would not provide this service in, by any means uh, to anyone. Uh, so that, and then, and then that had to be reviewed at six months. So six months there was to be a scheduled uh, a review, uh, which again, they couldn't take it any further. They could have dropped the case. And we actually appealed because in the meantime, we got an expert witness to give a, a, a statement on my behalf. We got a wonderful witness reports from many of the women that, that we helped. We got 10, very quickly, we got 10 excellent, strong supportive statements from the women. Uh, again, I emphasize no women, no women or their families had complained and they all gave very, very glowing reports of my behavior, uh, answering all of the allegations, actually. But to our surprise, so we got a, an early review in August, and we were told in advance, um, oh, this review has been called, because it wasn't meant to be for another three months. We were told this review has been called right. because of new evidence that has come to light, and we thought, this is it, we're, they're going to drop the, the charges. Wow. And unbelievably, at the start of the tribunal, the, the, the chairperson said, now we're not going to look at any of the evidence, we're just here to look at the allegations once again. And my, my, my solicitors were, thought this was unbelievable because they're you know, serious lawyers who work in proper courts of law. Right. And they, they, thought, they thought that this is, we, we've got to take this into the proper secular courts, if you like. So at that stage, we decided we were going to have to appeal to the, to the high court. And that's when we, we, we nego- started negotiations to, to, to take our case to the, to the proper courts, if you like, out of the hands of the GMC.
0: So so, what did you feel like at this point? Did you feel attacked? Was this hard on you? Was it hard on your wife, Dr. Yeah, Riley?
2: It was, it was probably hard. It was hard on Dr. Riley because I, I, I have to say I was very, well, very, very well supported and protected um, within 48 hours of the, the initial email because I had to inform the various pro-life organizations that, you know, we have to stop this. We can't continue. And word got out to one of our organizations called Christian Concern. Who immediately took me under their wing? I hardly knew them. I, I knew them sort of vaguely because I'd been involved with some pro-life discussions uh, on, on you know, abortion bills by post. But they suddenly decided they were going to because they have a Christian Legal Centre team, mm-hmm. and they wanted to they wanted to support me. As did ADF International, by the way. So we were people were queuing up to to support us, which is great. Pro bono, so we didn't have to pay any anything to them. Yes, uh, they gave a wonderful service, and um, my initial rea- reaction was you know there's nothing we can do we're powerless the gmc have all the power we just have to go along with this and the the ceo of christian concern a wonderful lady called andrea williams said no no this is unjust we will not give up we will challenge this and we will win mm. and i said well okay you know if you're if you want <laughs> I, eileen uh decided because she christian concern offered to help her as well as at adf international but she on Legal advice decided to go with one of the the secular indemnity bodies, and they defended her. they their attitude was totally different. Keep your head down. Don't make this any worse. Don't challenge it. We know you're guilty, but let's try and aim for damage limitation. Basically,
0: <laughs> we know um, you're guilty.
2: So, in in some ways, it was a little bit more difficult for Eileen. I got wonderful support, and Christian Concern then through their networks had prayer groups all over the world praying for me and and for Eileen. That this would. How about yeah,
1: how about physicians? Your colleagues were they. Did they line up against you, for you, or both?
2: Very few know anything about it. Uh, I wasn't allowed. To, I was, or at least I was strongly discouraged from talking about it among my uh, peers in, in the in the in my workplace. I had to go and see my medical director, who's who's basically the boss of the of all the the doctors in the hospital. And um, he has a duty to to care for anyone that is under investigation by the GMC because doctors have committed suicide. Like mm. this can be this can be a very stressful. Uh, situation for doctors, sure. and two doctors in our region committed suicide purely on the allegations, even though they turned out to be false. Um, oh. So he was—he was obviously concerned for my welfare, and he was very good. Uh, he said he knew absolutely nothing about the, the issues involved, but I had to go and sit, meet him on a regular basis. And every time I'd go in, I'd say, are, "Are you okay?" And I say, oh, "I am fine." He said, are, "Are you sure you're okay?" He—he <laughs> he thought I should be trembling or or in tears, or, but maybe i was naive but i think it was that the prayer and the support and the, the knowing that i wasn't alone and that we were doing something right and i said to him many times no, if if we thought we had done something wrong that we were harming people then i i would be worried i would be very concerned but you know if i get dismissed or suspended or whatever for doing something right then so be it um my wife uh, you asked me about my wife she it was difficult yes. for her because her concern was, I'm going to lose my job, which I could have done. Not immediately, but I could have lost it. So after 18 months, if, if things had gone according to the plan of the GMC, there would have been a hearing, and the hearing could have gone either way. So I could have been completely uh, removed from the medical <coughs> register, not allowed to work. Uh, the, the so GMC what short-circuited
0: act, it from going to that 18-month hearing? What stopped it?
2: The, the appeal by the Christian Legal Centre. So we wrote to the High Court um, in England, which would be similar to your Supreme Court, and we were, to my surprise, we were granted a hearing. So we we only put the submission wow. in at the end of the end of September, start of October. I thought it would take years because it was a huge yes. backlog with COVID and so on. Yes. Um. But we were granted surprisingly a hearing the twenty fourth of February. Now, oh. 20, of this year. So within a few months. Uh, so we were we started getting ready for that and preparing our witnesses and so on. Um. In the meantime, the GMC had absolutely nothing. They had been desperately, or they. They said they had been investigating and looking for witnesses. That we got lots of emails to say that they were having trouble finding an expert witness to support the, the case against me. Um, and <laughs> we had got one within three days. Now I would say the the expert witness we got gave a very fair and balanced um, account. He is not under any obligation to me. I've never met him. I don't know who he is. He's an obstetrician. He performs abortions. He is not a Christian, so he had oh. no. He had no sort of conflict of interest, if you like. his duty was to basically to the court to the, to, pro- to the tribunal service to provide accurate information and he gave a very very strong supportive statement in what I had been doing um, oh. so was re- that was very helpful, but even more even stronger were the witness statements from the women because among the allegations was that I was forcing these vulnerable women to accept my pro life beliefs, my Catholic beliefs. I, I would say that the, the, the royal college um, I want to emphasize this the Royal college letter of complaint stated we 're not so much concerned about the treatment it 's the people involved and they pointed me they said one of them is the president of the Catholic Medical Association, and then the other mm. is an obstetrician who has spoken at pro life events, so they were trying to point to the GMC that because we were Catholic and pro life we could not be trusted and I, oh. I think that, that that I think was, uh, was surprising that they put that in writing because I think that may come back to haunt them it It, it was a definite anti Catholic blatant bias, unfortunately endorsed fully by the GMC. Uh, they they didn't say no, no, you can't go there. you can't say things like that. They endorsed it fully. So what
0: did the High Court do with that?
2: Yeah, so the High the, the High Court accepted our case and they said yes, we'll have this hearing on the twenty fourth of February two thousand and twenty three. The GMC had uh, had nothing until just before Christmas. They suddenly managed to find an expert witness because uh, they were now in a hurry. They had to get their Documents in order because you can't go to the court without some sort of evidence. You can't sort of mm-hmm. say, well, judge will say, Where, where's your evidence? And we said, well, we don't have any evidence you're on it, but we we don't like what that guy's doing, and that, that <laughs> doesn't hold doesn't hold up well in, in court. Uh, so they, they managed to get an expert witness, and, surpri- and his statement came out in mid January, and surprisingly, to our surprise, it was quite supportive. It was almost more supportive of what I was doing <laughs> than than our own expert witness. Again, he was an obstetrician. I don't know what his background is, but he was an obstetrician who gave his opinion on what we were doing. He said that there was an evidence base, because one of the claims is that there was no evidence base for what we were doing. He said, no, there actually is an evidence base. It may not be a strong one. There's no randomized controlled trials, but it, there is an evidence base, and it's published in PubMed. And he was happy with that. He was happy that a cardiologist, despite what, what other people might think, uh, there was no reason why a registered medical practitioner should not be able to prescribe uh, progesterone, which is a, you know, a safe treatment. He had no problems sure. with that his only his only concern was that i was because i had offered to um pay for the treatment for some of the women who couldn't afford it or who may not be able to afford it and also for scans if, the, if they needed me to help them with scans he was he was a bit concerned was that bribery but we pointed out that we weren't paying the women we were paying the service we were paying the pharmacist basically we were paying the ultrasonographer who was who was doing the scan it wasn't going directly to, to the
1: mothers so, Those crazy, uh, crazy pro-life charitable Catholics. Yeah, and,
2: uh, yeah, char- yeah charity is now a, cr- a criminal offence, uh, apparently, <laughs> in, in the eyes of some. Um, but yeah, so his report then came to the GMC. So the GMC now had to look at the evidence. So for the first time, they looked at the expert witness reports on both sides. They looked at the witness statements from the mothers. They looked at another a number of other supportive statements that had been sent away on, on my behalf. And they looked again at the allegations against me. And they, they passed it on to their to their expert examiners that, that look at these things. And six days before the scheduled court appearance, they they dropped the case. And uh, the, the, the formal the formal declaration was that they, they said that there was no prospect of finding any evidence to support any of the allegations that had been made against me. Wow. In, so interesting the, man, in many ways,
1: you were almost a martyr. We're glad that you weren't, but um, I'm sure you had that that feeling that, you know, you might be martyred pretty soon. Um, you know, what was, that, what was that like? How did that make you feel? It had to be frightening.
2: It was, it was a little bit frightening. We had to start, myself and my wife had to start looking around at, uh, you know, if I do lose my job, which wouldn't have been for another, uh, we had about 18 months. We had until November 2022 when, when the full hearing was scheduled to appear if there had been no high court intervention. So we didn't actually go to court. So we, they, they dropped the case before we got to court.
1: But you, uh, you know, you were out there on the fighting edge um, as a Catholic, and I think most American physicians that we talk to, Catholic. Would not want to be where you were. they would not want to be fighting the fight and waving you know waving the flag. Um, yeah. what what was, what was that like to feel like a Catholic on the edge in a in a pretty well, it's, anti-catholic it's, environment? It's,
2: it's, it's always good to be a Catholic, so there's nothing wrong with being, being so it's a, it's a good feeling to be a Catholic. Um, <laughs> I suppose that the way I looked at it and I, I, was, I was interviewed on one of you there's a wonderful guy in in, in Pennsylvania. Uh, called Travis Rusko, who does a, a podcast, and he he came across my story on Twitter, I think and he he contacted me, and I did a little webinar or a little uh, podcast with him, and he asked me that question said so a lot of our Christian listeners would want to know like how does your faith sort of sustain you and all of this mm. and uh, I told him the truth the way I'd looked at it was um and I rem- you, you probably know Patricia Heaton, the actress yes. Patricia. Heaton. She's yes. been asked that a, number of, a number of occasions about how is she one of the very few Catholics, pro-life people in Hollywood who is prepared to stand against all of the other sort of anti-life and anti-Catholic and anti-religious. And, and her, her statement really struck home with me a few years ago when she said, well, on the final day, it's not Barbara Streisand I'll have to stand before at the throne of judgment. And, <laughs> I don't know her. I I think Barbara Streisand is terrific. She's a great singer and a great actress. But uh, (laughs) I I got I knew what she meant. Um, And that was the feeling I had. It's not the GMC. It's not the NHS that I'm going to have to stand before. So, Mm. you know, I have this drive that, you know, as long as we're doing what's right, then we may have to suffer the consequences. Uh, We will have to suffer the consequences. No Mm -hmm. doubt about that. Um, So you know if 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 the worst had come to the worst if I'd lost my job i wasn't allowed to work I, I could do something else i wouldn't it wouldn't be maybe as well paid and uh, we probably would have to live sell our house and live into a smaller little house which which you know may not be a bad thing um but th- th- so th- this is, it w- it wasn't wouldn't have been the end of the world um and if I was doing so, right then.
0: So Dermot, because of what the GMC wrote, is it now easier for people like you, other people besides you and Dr. Riley, to prescribe high dose progesterone for abortion pill reversal?
2: It should be. It should be because um, I wouldn't say it's a green light, but they have found that there's no case to answer in the allegations, the specific allegations that were made against us. And if any other doctors had the courage to, to do what we were doing and do what we were, and the, the, the expertise and the knowledge to do what we were doing. Um, th- nothing. there could be no case against them. The, all of the possible arguments against them have already been dealt with, and the GMC have basically dismissed all of the possible arguments. And they can't be resurrected again. They can't say, oh, we forgot to ask you this. Or forgot. Now, if new new information came to light, so if a woman did suffer some serious problem and complained, then they would have to take uh, that. But th- that that's extremely unlikely to happen, I, I would
0: think. But if they just do the expectant waiting, like they recommended receive the first pill, not the second, can't they have... High amounts of bleeding?
2: You see, that, that's the thing. The, uh, you're probably aware of the, um, well, one of the arguments that, that they've tried to make against us is, as I said, initially they said there's no need. But, you know, that's obviously not true. Then they tried to say, well, it doesn't work anyway. Now we can give the example we've got um, an over 50% success rate with the women we've helped. In the United States, there's almost 4,000 babies have been born. So we know that it works. It doesn't work all the time, but it works effectively compared to doing nothing or expecting management then they, they tried to say now that it's dangerous and they're based that purely on a paper by mitchell Crine and another outspoken opponent of apr who was determined to show that apr doesn't work so he set up this i would say bogus study or pseudo-scientific study and um he tried to show that um he basically took women who were going to have a surgical procedure or any surgical termination of pregnancy anyway, and he persuaded them to delay it for 15 days. Uh, he was going to—he was only going to use 40 women. Now, I can't think of any trial in history where you can show a significant difference between two treatment groups with just 40 <laughs> subjects, knowing that at least 10% will drop out, and in something as controversial as abortion, probably 15 to 20% are going to drop out. But he was determined that this was going to be a, a valid study. So one half would—they all get. Um, Mifepristone, and then the next day, half would get progesterone, half would get placebo, and then he'd follow them up for 15 days. And at 15 days, surprisingly, um, f- four out of five of the women on progesterone group were still pregnant at 15 days, uh, 80%. And in the placebo group, two out of five. So that was demonstrating that there was a doubling of survival with progesterone. <laughs> which is what we've been saying all along, basically. Now, we know that if you go on beyond 15 days, there will be more losses. But at that early stage, it was shown a significant survival advantage with the active treatment. It also showed that two women uh, with the placebo had a significant hemorrhage, one of whom required a transfusion and the other required a surgical intervention. And one woman woman in the progesterone group had a, a bleed. She attended her ER, was checked, assessed, blood pressure was stable, hemoglobin was stable, and she was discharged home without any need for any intervention. So we shown not only was it more effective in survival in terms of uh, fetal survival, it was also safer and that was likely to cause less hemorrhage. And I, I suspect that the the, um, the organizers of that study and the researchers didn't like it didn't like this was not supposed to happen. This was meant <laughs> to show that there was no difference between... It's amazing that I ever saw light. So uh, they, had to, they had to find some reason to to stop the study early. So they said, oh, three women have had a hemorrhage, had to attend EOR, this is unsafe. So then they're out there. <laughs> so they're, so they're, in their discussion, their main... They said, well, we can't extrapolate what might have happened after 15 days, and maybe there would have been different outcomes. They said it was just too dangerous. So the main point of the study in their eyes was that if a woman takes the first abortion pill but doesn't take the second pill the misoprostol then she's at major risk of, of hemorrhage so expectant management and that's what nhs england are advocating that oh expectant management is, is the right thing to do but if they mm-hmm. go with that then they're directly contradicting what mitchell Crindon is saying so they're contradicting each other that uh, it's on the one hand they're saying that's the only thing you should do you shouldn't get progesterone that's dangerous but on the other hand they're saying if you don't take mif- mif- m- misoprostol uh that's dangerous so they can have it both ways. So they either expect the management is good or it's bad. Uh, we're, we're, we would advocate it. So there's a third option here. You can take progesterone. We know it's safe. It won't do any harm. It might improve the chance of fetal survival and it might reduce your risk of serious hemorrhage.
0: 30 seconds left. What do you want to leave our listeners with, Dermot?
2: Um, have the courage of your convictions. Don't, mm. ever, don't ever get tired of doing what's right. Uh, you, know, you, know, you know in your heart and in your conscience what's the right thing to do. Don't be afraid. You have nothing to be afraid of. Um, all these things pass. Any trials, tribulations come your way will pass. And uh, We know what the final outcome is and we want to be on the, the right side.
0: Dermot, thanks for being with us on Dr. Doctor. I hope thousands of people are encouraged by your wonderful story.
1: Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and welcome to the answer of this episode's medical trivia question about what else? Hormones. It just doesn't get any better than that. Which of the following hormones that are typically associated with women uh, in discussions like this plays the most important role in the production of sperm in men? This is a tricky one, Tom. It is
0: because we talked a lot about progesterone, so people might think that's the answer, but it's not. So which one of the other four is it? Estrogen? FSH, LH, or prolactin. It actually happens to be FSH, follicle stimulating hormone. So, how in the world can that be, Chris? Because men don't have follicles.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, it should be called something else in men, but it's it's not. It's called FSH. And it's the same hormone that is called FSH in women, ironically. We're not that different sometimes, Um, but it it has a dramatically different effect. So FSH comes from the pituitary gland in the brain, and it stimulates in men the testes, which are analogous uh, to the ovaries in women, but the outcome is not eggs. It's men's (laughs) version of eggs or gametes, (laughs) uh, which are are called sperm. So it's not testosterone because when you hear men and hormones, everybody thinks it's always testosterone. In this case, it's actually not.
0: Wow. But it works with testosterone to make those sperm. So enough of that. And now what are your top three takeaways for this episode, Chris?
1: Well, one, one is I want to go visit the UK and talk to doctors. It sounds like a pretty exciting place to be. Um, but I, I love it where you said, um, never tire of doing what's right. Isn't that great advice uh, for every physician out there, every healthcare worker out there? If we could just adopt that attitude of let's do what's right and we're not going to tire of it uh, regardless. Um, the other is um, the forces of death. I mean, this culture of death, it's not limited to America, this is international. And I think you did a great job of portraying how, how pro abortion the culture is there. And then I also thought it was interesting. Europeans respond the same way as North Americans do. When you actually show them pictures of what's happening, they suddenly realize that's not what I thought, and I'm not in favor of it anymore. Right. Um, and then lastly, a very practical point. This works, not every time, but progesterone in between the two dosages um, can save lives. And so you can direct, if you just type into your search engine, progesterone and abortion reversal, You'll find an, a, a national web, literally, of people that you can talk to and you can be assigned a healthcare provider in your area. And you can get this treatment or someone you care about who maybe has made the mistake of taking the first dose. They can get this treatment and lives can be saved.
0: Yep. The Abortion Pill Rescue Network, of which our good Dr. Chris Stroud is an important node or part in it. <laughs> Well, thank you for listening to us and for listening to Dermot Kearney from the UK. We hope to get some more international guests here on Dr. Doctor. Uh, and if you want to listen to other episodes, you can do so on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on episode archive at the top where you can search over 200 episodes by topic or guest.
1: And if, for some unexplainable reason, you'd like to see us as well as hear us, just click on the YouTube link near the top of the homepage at drdoctor.org. Also, if you've got a question or you've got an idea for a guest or an episode, we'd love to know about it. And just click on Submit a Question there on the website.
0: This is Dr. Tom McGovern.
1: And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor.
2: The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org.